Section 3 of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2. Raleigh in Ireland. Raleigh's restless spirit did not allow him to remain long quiet after his return from Sir Humphrey Gilbert's unfortunate expedition. In the beginning of 1580, we find him leading a company of a hundred men into Ireland to aid in the seemingly hopeless task of putting down the rebels. Ireland was at that time in a most disturbed condition. Never since the country had been first conquered in the days of Henry II had order been made to prevail over the land. The efforts of the English rulers had soon been confined to the attempt to keep some order within the English pale, as the district immediately round Dublin was called. Without the pale, the native chiefs and the descendants of the Norman barons who had settled there when the island was first conquered kept up a continual warfare for supremacy. The Norman families had adopted the manners and customs of the native Irish and were as wild and uncivilized as they. Henry VII had tried to introduce some order, but he had hoped to persuade the most powerful of the native chiefs to own his authority by putting the government into their hands. The result, naturally, was that the English influence grew weaker than ever. Henry VIII could not rest content with such a state of things. He wished to make his power felt in the country by a firm and vigorous government, and at the same time to win over the turbulent chiefs and make them adopt English civilization and order by seeing its advantages. This policy might in the end have met with success, but one great cause of the continual disorders in Ireland has been that no one policy has ever prevailed long enough to accomplish anything. The even advance of the firm though conciliatory policy of Henry VIII was disturbed by the Reformation. As a matter of course, he introduced the same ecclesiastical changes into Ireland as he had introduced into England, regarding both countries as politically one. No violent opposition was raised in Ireland either to the royal supremacy or to the dissolution of the monasteries, but when it came to changes in matters of doctrine the case was different. The spirit of the Reformation had not influenced Ireland at all, the people clung to the old faith all the more vehemently because of the attempts made to force the new religion upon them. Catholicism was identified with patriotism and Protestantism and the English rule were regarded with equal hatred by the turbulent Irish chiefs. In Mary's days, of course, the attempt to force Protestantism upon the Irish was laid aside, but it was taken up again under Elizabeth and the religious question increased the difficulties of the Irish problem. There was no religious persecution, but it suited Philip II and the Catholic party in Europe generally to suppose that there was, and so to use Ireland as ground from which Elizabeth's power might easily be attacked. No means seemed more likely to bring order and civilization into Ireland than to encourage its colonization by English settlers. With this view, confiscated estates in Ireland had been continually granted to Englishmen, but it was very difficult to get them to live on their estates, and it could hardly be expected that they would do so unless some means existed to defend them from the turbulence of the native Irish. To maintain order in the country, the presence of a large body of well-trained troops was necessary. This, of course, involved expense, 
and expense was the one thing which Elizabeth most dreaded. Economy was her passion, and though the result proved that her economy was most useful for the final good of England, yet at the time it often seemed to throw hindrances in the way of the wisest schemes of her servants. In Ireland especially, want of the necessary money prevented again and again the deputies from carrying out the steps necessary to subdue the rebels and introduce order. Of Elizabeth's deputies in Ireland, none was so successful as Sir Henry Sidney, the father of Sir Philip Sidney. He took the office unwillingly, and in his efforts to do his duty as deputy, he met with little encouragement from Elizabeth, who on the contrary seemed always to throw hindrances in his way. He was at last successful in destroying the power of Shane O'Neill, a great chieftain who had done more than any other to endanger the English rule in Ireland, and who had ruled as an independent prince in the northwestern portion of the island. Elizabeth had clung to the hope that he might be won over to be a faithful subject, and that she would be spared the expense necessary to subdue him. At last she was persuaded to allow vigorous measures to be adopted. O'Neill's entire overthrow and subsequent death gave Ireland some years of comparative peace, but soon new causes of disturbance began to appear in the south, in Munster, where a ceaseless feud raged between the two powerful houses of Desmond and Ormond. Elizabeth favoured the Earl of Ormond because he was a Protestant, and she hoped to find him a useful servant in Ireland. The Earl of Desmond had been dragged into a rebellion against the English rule by the promise of aid from Philip II. A force of about 700 Spanish and Italian troops had landed at Schmerich, in Kerry, and there on the shore built a fort to which they gave the name Del Oro. Jesuits were busy stirring up the people to revolt, and the whole country was in a ferment. This was the state of things which Raleigh found in 1580 when he landed at Cork with his force of a hundred men. He too had to suffer from Elizabeth's parsimony. We find him writing to the Lord Treasurer Burley, soon after his arrival, to complain that he had received no money to pay his troops and had been obliged to pay them out of his own private means. From the first, Raleigh seems to have believed that nothing but the most vigorous measures and the most ruthless severity to the rebels would avail to bring order into Ireland. As it was, the Irish chieftains carried on a ceaseless war of pillage and spoliation against the English settlers. The English soldiers revenged their outrages whenever they could by worse crimes. There was no agriculture, no industry. All the resources of that fertile country were left undeveloped, and the English rule was once more seriously threatened by the great rebellion in the south under Desmond. Some months after his arrival in Ireland, we find Raleigh at Cork, acting as one of the commissioners who tried and condemned to execution as a traitor, James, brother of the Earl of Desmond, who had been captured in a chance skirmish. In August 1580, a new deputy, Lord Grey de Wilton, arrived in Dublin. He was a stern and determined man, and was by no means likely to shrink from severe measures. His first desire was to take the fort of Del Oro, where a new force of Spanish and Italian soldiers had just landed. Their commanders did all they could to stir up the Irish to make still more extensive plans of rebellion. The English were in continual fear of the arrival of a more formidable Spanish force, which they would be powerless to oppose on account of the small number of their troops. 
to destroy the fort of del oro whilst it was still possible seemed the first thing needful raleigh was one of the captains who accompanied lord grey on his march to smerwick it was a wild stormy autumn but the severe weather and the hardships of the march did not destroy the courage of the soldiers nor the determination of their leaders whilst grey attacked the fort from the land sir william winter attacked it from the sea the fort did not hold out for many days grey twice called upon the garrison to yield to mercy but in vain raleigh was in the thick of the assault on the three first days he led the attack and also on the last day when his troops managed to enter the castle and make a great slaughter then the garrison despaired and hung out a white flag crying misericordia misericordia but grey would hear of no treaty and of no mercy and the garrison was forced to make an absolute surrender grey's own words in the dispatch which he sent to the english government best describe what followed i sent straightway certain gentlemen he writes to see their weapons and armour laid down and to guard the munition and victuals that were left from spoil then put i in certain bands who straightway fell to execution there were six hundred slain munition and victual great store though much wasted through the disorder of the soldiers which in their fury could not be helped it seems that no lives were saved except those of the officers of rank who were distributed amongst grey's favourite officers that they might profit by their ransoms the horrors of the massacre are a clear sign of the bitter hatred with which the english regarded the spaniards in those days it may seem hardly possible to find excuses for such cruelty but we must remember how religious questions had irritated men's minds how jesuits in disguise plotted and schemed in england and ireland stirring up men's minds to disobedience and revolt against the government even encouraging them to plot the assassination of their queen in the excitement of their feelings men believed the danger from spain to be greater than it really was they knew that the spanish soldiers in ireland and the irish rebels themselves shrank from no outrage however horrible against the english it was hardly to be expected that they themselves would treat the spaniards leniently it certainly seems strange to see a man like raleigh afterwards the refined courtier the cultivated man of letters engaged in such bloody work it is only another sign amongst many how he entered into the busy life of those days in all its varied phases and gained experience of every kind the fall of del oro and the massacre of its garrison was a death-blow to the hopes of the irish rebels desmond was pursued by the earl of ormond his hereditary foe and elizabeth's ally his lands were wasted and pillaged but he himself escaped pursuit for three years when at last he was discovered hiding in a hovel and was murdered. After his active service at the siege of the Spanish fort, Raleigh was still employed in Munster, where in various skirmishes he had a great deal of severe fighting with the rebels. Munster was in a state of hopeless disorder, and Raleigh was disgusted with the inefficient means taken to bring about a better state of things. Active and clear-sighted, he was full of schemes for the better government of the province, but he and Lord Grey did not get on well together. Grey seems to have been jealous of Raleigh's abilities, and unwilling to listen to the advice which Raleigh urged upon him in the tone of an equal rather than of an inferior. 
In December 1581, Raleigh was back again in England. He was not silent either to the Queen or to the Council about his views as to the state of Ireland and the inefficiency of the government there. But the suppression of the rebellion had cost large sums of money. Elizabeth was fearful of anything that might provoke another rebellion. Active resistance to the English rule was at an end for the time, but the condition of the country was no less miserable. Munster was utterly desolate. The corn had been burnt in the fields, the cattle had been slaughtered, the women and children burnt in their houses. Spencer thus describes the wretched condition of this part of the country. Notwithstanding that the same was a most rich and plentiful country, full of corn and cattle, yet ere one year and a half they were brought to such wretchedness as that any stony heart would have rued the same. Out of every corner of the woods and glens they came creeping forth upon their hands, for their legs would not bear them. They looked like anatomies of death, they spake like ghosts crying out of their graves, they did eat the dead carrions, happy where they could find them, yea, and one another soon after, inasmuch as the very carcasses they spared not to scrape out of their graves, and if they found a plot of watercresses or shamrocks, there they flocked as to a feast for a time, yet not able long to continue therewithal, that in short space there were none almost left, and a most prosperous and plentiful country suddenly left void of man and beast. The power of the Desmonds was now at an end. Their lands, to the extent of half a million of acres, escheated to the crown, and were granted out to Elizabeth's favorites as a reward for their services. If these lands had now been regularly colonized and cared for by resident owners, the benefit to Ireland would have been great. The lands were very fertile and had great capabilities, but most of the owners were non-resident, and the colonization was irregular. Another golden opportunity for improving the state of Ireland was lost. Twelve thousand acres of this land was granted to Raleigh. He clearly realized the good that might come to Ireland from colonization, and the profits his estate might yield if carefully managed. He took care to get industrious tenants, importing some from Devonshire and Somersetshire, and his lands were better cared for than most of those granted to Englishmen in Ireland. But Raleigh, too, was an absentee landlord. He paid occasional visits to his Irish estates, but as time went on his varied pursuits and interests hindered him from giving much attention to them. In 1602 he sold nearly all his lands in Ireland to Richard Boyle, afterwards Earl of Cork, in whose hands they became the most thriving estate in Ireland. It was on these lands that the first attempt at the cultivation of the potato was made. The colonists whom Raleigh sent to Virginia brought it back with them in 1596, and Raleigh, ever ready to profit by a new discovery, tried planting it first in Ireland, where it was to become such an important article of diet. End of section 3